Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. I am so excited for you to meet a new friend of mine. And even though we haven't known each other all that long, as you might imagine, with the whole Story Night ministry, we jump into each other's stories rather quickly. So we've already gone super deep, and I feel like I've known this lady forever. So Hannah, welcome. Thank you so much for being here and for opening up your story. But before we get to that, would you just give a quick introduction of yourself to our listeners? Thank you so much, Jessica, for having me. And I cherish the Lord and his capacity to bond sisters in the family so tightly, so quickly. And I too feel like we've known each other forever. I haven't even met you in person, but I can't wait for that to happen. My name is Hannah, Dukku Kolamainen, and I live out in Washington County in Oregon and have been in the area for about 25 years now. I live out here with my husband, Justin, and my boys, Paul and James, and out in the farm where we just have a wonderful, simple life and are so richly blessed by the Lord and this gorgeous state that we get to live in. It is absolutely beautiful. We keep telling our family that we found the best state. (laughs) We're very, very happy to be here in Oregon. And I'm just so grateful that you ended up here in a place and time where I got to connect with you. But as I understand it, your life and life story did not begin in Oregon. And so I'm, I'm just going to have you jump in. If you don't mind, we're going to go back to the beginning of your story. And and as we sort of tell the narrative of your story, there's so many pieces that will come out of it. And I'm excited to have you share sort of what you're doing now with our listeners, but that, that'll be towards the end. So listeners, hang on, we got it. We're going to start with the narrative of her life story. Great. Thanks, Jessica. I, like I said, have been in Oregon for about 25 years was born in Kenya, out in the country in a small town called Kiambu, and had a most marvelous childhood. Growing up with a really simple but very rich life with amazing experiences and surrounded by loving, beautiful, beautiful people and have a wonderful legacy that I cherish deeply and draw from frequently. I marvel because now I've been here in the States longer than I was in Kenya. And so there's that tipping point where what do I even call home anymore? So even though I call, I refer to Kenya as home, it's been a long time since I've lived there, but the impact of it was so deep. Grew up the sixth of seven children out on a farm, on a coffee farm and got to pick coffee as a kid, which I absolutely Hated. We'd be out there all the live long day in the sun picking coffee, and we were paid by the five gallon bucket. And I was the kid that was notorious for hiding rocks in the bottom of my bucket and then stealing other people's coffee, <laughs> coffee berries to fill mine up. And of course, I'd always get busted when it was time to dump out your bucket load because what on earth is this, Hannah? Again, right? So I was slow to learn that lesson and grew up surrounded by, of course, my multiple siblings, by cousins, by people who worked in the land where I was. We had cattle, we had pigs, we had wonderful, and it's a really fertile area, much like the Oregon Willamette Valley is where I am now, where just about anything grows. That was, that was a very amazing, rich experience to grow up in. I think it's so amazing when we get to look back and just see all of the different beginning points and how those story where those stories were going to go. I mean, if somebody had told you as a as a little girl in Kenya, oh, by the way, you're going to end up in Oregon in the United States doing this that and the, I mean, <laughs> pretty amazing because I frequently say that looking at my life feels like an out of body experience. Like I'm watching a movie or storyline unfold, which thrills me to no end because I have no idea where my life is going. I marvel at where God has walked me and what he has carried me through. And so it's been so unpredictable and so marvelous and thrilling to watch my life that I 
I relish leaving it up to him instead of trying to plan it and micromanage all details because I, I could not have written my narrative the way he has. He is such a master storyteller. And so I cherish that deeply. Kimo certainly is a master storyteller. We've maybe read through chapter one in your particular life narrative. So take us into chapter two. I have lots of passions in my life. I think I'm an artist at at heart and love creating. I love cooking. I love baking. I love gardening, outlandish gardens that just are fun and whimsical and with no, uh, with no particular order to them, but just splashes of magnificent color, just like God does in his creation. Um, I love to write, and uh, that includes poetry and write stories about my life and fiction. I love calligraphy. And so I found that those things have really poured out systematically from the time I was a little child. More than anything, I love teaching. And I remember as a little child, my mom would call me teacher. And I don't remember if I asked her to call me teacher or if she just realized that I had the heart of a teacher. And so she'd say, teacher, breakfast is ready. And um, I, she called me that more than she called me Hannah, which was so great. And I remember I was, I was the kid that would line up all my toys in the hallway and we'd hold class and I'd take roll call and they'd answer and and some would get in trouble because they were particularly naughty. Uh, but I found that wherever the Lord has taken me, he has bent me towards sharing what he shares with me. And during our times of intimacy and communion, he teaches me glorious things that I then can't keep to myself and find that I have to teach. And so I love how he has used my passions in life um, from the time I was a little girl, and I just see this common thread woven through, clear through today. I came to the Lord at the age of about 14. That's when I made a decision for Jesus. And my faith is a beautiful legacy. My grand, my maternal grandfather was a pioneer missionary in our area. And his name was Charles Kibiro. And here was this African man in a very traditional village who heard the voice of Jesus in his soul stirring as spoken by German missionaries. So I, I frequently look back and marvel at what it took for those men to leave Germany and decide we're going to Africa to share the word, the dark continent, right? To share the word of God and what their families must have thought. Oh, the dismay, I can only imagine, right? You'll never come back. You'll never, you'll be eaten alive. You'll, whatever, all the stories we can imagine. Not to forget the song, please don't take me to Africa. <laughs> and they answered that call. And I look back and think of all the circumstances and details that the Lord took to get his word to me. And this has become more dear to me in just the last couple of years as that realization came to mind. I'd always taken my spiritual heritage for granted. Um, so grandpa came to the Lord and it was deeply laid in his heart to share the gospel with the local people. And so he planted churches and he poured his heart out to sharing about this Jewish Messiah who loved the African man and woman and child and died for them and desired to influence their lives. For me, it was my sister, Faith, who had a very vibrant walk with Jesus. And I loved watching her and her life. Hers was a very practical walk. God was very involved in her everyday life and her decision-making and her actions. And I loved watching her. But I didn't come to the Lord until I was 14 years old, my first year in high school. And... Boy, somebody gave an altar call and I just shot out of my chair. I was so ready for this influence in my life that I can't even explain right now, but it just made sense and it just clicked as he wooed me and called me to himself and stole my heart from that moment. So I get to partake in this divine romance with the king of the universe who stooped down, saw me, chose me, 
and delights to make me great. I, I, I do not understand why he likes me. He has no reason to like or love me, but he does. So I'm just going with his plan. And that's my faith story. So since 14 years old, here we are many decades later. And that romance has gotten sweeter and deeper. And he's walked me through lots of fires and, and lots of waters and brought me out triumphantly. And I'm so grateful. Amen. <laughs> it is an incredibly beautiful story when you think of how faith gets passed down through people and the generations. You just never know how much that one little seed can produce and Absolutely. how that could turn into an entire field of faith-filled believers. And here you are, and you can sort of trace your wouldn't it be it suddenly I thought of like ancestry.com and how cool would it be if you could do that spiritually? Right? Like wouldn't so that be amazing where you could say, Oh, this person taught me about Jesus. Well, who taught that person? Well, who taught and like trace your spiritual lineage back? <laughs> That could, that could be a money maker, Jessica. I know, it just, just um, came to me. <laughs> and we are we are children of Abraham and are called children of faith of Abraham and his children by faith. And from the beginning, when God was dealing with Abraham, he called him to go. Leave that comfort zone and go to a place that he did not know. And so, like you said, whether it's a physical comfort zone that we're leaving or even just an emotional comfort zone, where we get to step onto the water and he says, go and I'll hold you up and I'll carry you through this. Really, that's our heritage and our calling in our lives is to go. And we have to get out of our comfort zones for that to happen. It is. I imagine. Now, I know the outline of your story, but not all the details yet. And I can only imagine that at some point, considering your life started in Kenya and you're now in Oregon, that somewhere in there you had to get out of your comfort zone as well. The Lord used beautiful circumstances whereby it actually didn't seem very beautiful at the time. I had been attending college for about a year in Kenya and um, was training to become a teacher, a professional teacher. And a year in, we had political unrest in the country and school was closed indefinitely. And my father put out an option and said, hey, would you like to consider going to the United States for studies. And I was stunned and thrilled. It wasn't an unusual thing for Kenyans to come to the United States, but it was a really difficult process, a very expensive process. It's hard to get a visa, was then, is now, probably harder now. But the kind Lord clearly had things lined up for me where a young student that attended college with me, she was East Indian. And one summer she came home and brought these beautiful colored brochures to from Pacific University to our high school. And oh, I just grabbed one and took it with me and hid it under my pillow because I didn't want my parents to think I'd be looking at stuff like that. But I'd just look at those pictures and marvel at those beautiful oak trees. I'd never seen oak trees before and, and squirrels. I've never seen squirrels before. And it was so great to just look through that brochure and and drool over the thought, fantasize about it. Little did I know that the Lord would bring that about because it was, you know, about a year or two late. I was in high school then. It was about a year or two later that our universities shut down. And I said, Hey, dad, I have this for sure that I've been looking at for a while. Maybe I could apply here in no time. I have this huge packet from Pacific University welcoming me onto their campus and life there. And. In no time, I was able to apply for a passport, which a lot of times entails bribing and waiting and files disappearing in government offices. And, and he made that happen in no time. Applying for a visa, going to the American embassy, taking dumb language tests and so much, so many steps to cross. And he walked me swiftly through each of those steps, enabled me to get a visa. And before I knew what hit me, here I am, the little thing on an airplane for the first time, I just waved goodbye at my family. It was, it was trance-like. Once I passed through those gates, and I remember Jessica standing there looking back and seeing my family standing behind those uh, glass, those huge glass windows with their faces and noses plastered, and they're all waving goodbye. And for the first time, it hit me. 
what did I just do? Here is everybody that I know and love so dearly. And they're crying. Why are they crying? Oh, maybe I should be crying too. <laughs> but I was so excited. And, you know, you get kind of funneled along like cattle. And and then I go and sit in my airplane seat. And I, I don't know what to do. So I'm kind of watching the guy beside me out of the corner of my eye to see how you buckle your seat and how you sit up and what you, how do we behave in an airplane? And um, all so exciting. And I thought, oh, Lord. But I love this, Jessica. I remember a gathering before I left where my parents prayed over me and members of the community came to bless me and wish me well and see me away. A very tribal type of sending off, which is another depth of wealth in in and of itself. And they told me, we don't know where you're going. We're sending you off into the world. You're going to get on that airplane. We don't even know where you're going to get off the airplane or what connections you're going to make off of Lufthansa Airways and you'll be in Germany. And then I don't know what gate you're going to be going to next. You're going to figure it out. But they said, the Lord goes with you. And when you get there, you find the Lord's people. And that was the best advice I have ever found. And that is advice that I even tell my children now. I'm a mom of a 16 and a 13-year-old young man who I always encourage to to leave Washington County for crying out loud and go to Brazil and you go to, you know, go to Japan. And when you get there, you find the Lord's people and everything else will iron itself out, right? And so that again becomes a deep part of my legacy that I want to pass on to my children, my physical children, but also the spiritual children. That wherever you are in your situation right now, wherever the Lord is sending you or calling you to, Go for crying out loud, put down whatever you're dealing with. Go running. He goes with you. And when you get there, you find the Lord's people. Yes. It sounds, it sounds easier said than done in some ways that it is very easy to move, whether it's a simple move or a dramatic move and just sort of think, well, I'll, I'll find a church community later or I'll get around to that or I'll get plugged in like once you've been plugged in and you unplug yourself and you move it really is I couldn't agree with you more as soon as possible that should be you know step I mean turn on your utilities but then <laughs> get yourself spiritually <laughs> plugged in like that's that's the next utility <laughs> so utilities I love that so you made it to the United States on this first plane ride and you get off I mean, and I'm just sort of paint that picture because I, I know some of our listeners have lived through something very similar, but, but many have not. Many have not done a move of that magnitude at that age and had really such a, a culture shock, I imagine. And, you know, so what in those moments as you step off and, and start, you know, your first few days here, what was that like? Here I am, 21 years old, with a suitcase, single suitcase that my dad gave me, black and green uh, plaid suitcase. And uh, he loved to travel the world, so he said he said it had served him well, and he wanted it to serve me. And I get off this airplane, and a gentleman I'd been corresponding with, named Dave Stout, was the dean of students at the time. And he met me at the airport. And there he stood with a sign with my name on it. And I was exhausted. I'd been flying for 24 hours. And when I left Kenya, it was nighttime. And there's a 12-hour difference. So since I was flying west after flying north into Europe, I kept flying into into nighttime. So it was this darkness for 24 hours. And that really discombobulated me. And so when I got off that plane, I was exhausted. I was I was tired. I was, yeah, needless to say, all those things. And I come out and I see my name. And oh, the joy of familiarity. Right. There's a person I've never seen, but, but there's my name. I belong with on my people. And he was a tall man. He was about six foot. He was probably six ten, the way I remember him. And, and I stood there and looked at him and thought, Oh my gosh, they, they are all big. Everything here is huge. The buildings were massive. <laughs> the buildings were huge. The furniture was everything was so big. And I, I don't know if it was because I was so tired or if it was my reality, but I, I marveled at the size of everything in the United States, just like they told me. Everything there is huge and fast. 
and brightly lit. And so they drove me out uh, to Pacific University and um, introduced me to my roommate and life happened pretty quickly. We had a week of orientation for school and then college started. And yeah, I remember that first Sunday I arrived, I think on a Thursday or Friday. And that first Sunday I went to a church and as the Lord would have it, uh, it was a very small church just across the college. And there was a pastor who had spent his summer in Kenya. And so when I introduced myself to him before church as having been from Kenya, he made a point to point me out uh, during the service to say, yep, and we have a young lady here from Kenya. And he made me stand up and wave at everybody. And it was so great. And then at the end of the service, it was so wonderful. There were two little old ladies. And Jessica, those ladies must have been 400 years old apiece. And on the way out, they said, oh, you're the little girl from Kenya, they said. I said, yes, I am. And they introduced themselves. And they said, what did you think of this service? And it was a church um, that I didn't really care for the style or the, but I didn't know it was church. And so I went and they said, and I, and I said, now I didn't know what to say. And they said, you didn't care for it. You know what we're going to do? We're going to drive you around Forest Grove and we're going to show you all the churches and you get to choose where you want to go next time. So out we went, they bought me lunch and then got me in this boat of a Cadillac that they were driving. And they drove me all around town and said, this church is this and this, and this is how they worship. And this church is this and this, and they're the ones who swing from the chandeliers and do cartwheels down the hall. And this one is nice and quiet, and they're the Catholics, and this is how. It was unreal. I would not have known. <laughs> and they were so gracious. I think they were little angels sent to me. I never knew angels walk with walkers. And there they were giving me a tour of town and showing me church. And you know what, Jessica, the next day I went to the Assembly of God Church in Forest Grove and that became my church home for so many years. I went in and they sucked me in and loved on me and I grew tremendously and was so blessed by that experience. And so those became my people for a good long time. You paint such a picture. (laughs) I have such a visual of these two little ladies with their walkers and just showing you around. And what what a refreshing story, because very often that's not the case. Very often there are people, especially those who have been a part of a particular church for a very long time, that are... This is the way we do it. This is the only right way to do it. And we're recruiting you to be part of the way we do it right here, right now. And if you don't like that, you're wrong. Sadly, that that is very often the case as opposed to the we are all brothers and sisters in this faith. And we want you to be plugged in, not just where you feel the best, but where God's called you to be. It's not just what can I get out of this particular church body, but what can I give to this particular church body? And for them to take the time and show you all the different types of church homes that you could be a part of, I would have loved to witness that. (laughs) Can just just imagine the car too that you're in. (laughs) (laughs) Your car I've never seen a bigger car. (laughs) It happens since, And, and you know what that did in me. That, that I'm realizing even as I speak now, it's spoken me a ministry of reaching out to people at church. I, I see so many people slip in and slip out of church and nobody says a word to them. And that is a sad thought to me that one would enter the very presence of the children of God in a family gathering. Just like somebody coming to Thanksgiving at your house and nobody saying hello or goodbye. And that breaks my heart. And so I, I have deep within me a love for singling out people who are unfamiliar in a church setting and making a point to shake their hand and visit for a minute if that's all they have. Because sometimes people do want to slip in and out as quickly as possible. But a lot of times it's such a hard process for somebody to leave their home and make a decision to go to church and leave their car. And it feels like a six mile walk across a parking lot to enter strange doors and see 
people who know each other, mingling and laughing with each other and drinking coffee, and nobody talking to him. And that's a sad thought to me. And so I pray, even for hearers, that they, that they would catch a new sight or a new thought or a new ministry, even, for the five minutes that it takes, two minutes sometimes, to go out of your way and step out of your comfort circle. There again, we are being called to go out of our comfort zones and make a stranger feel at home in our churches is immeasurable and rich. Such a testimony. I think it's a beautiful reminder because, yeah, there are so many people feel like the outsider. And here you are coming in, you know, from a completely different continent and, and being welcomed by, and I love too that it's, that there were two, um, older ladies. It wasn't even like two women that are your age also in college, you know, where it's like, oh, they, ha- you have all this in common, even among your differences that you really, <laughs> I mean, I'm, Imagine that their life stories and your life story probably weren't all that similar other than the fact that you loved God. Beautiful intersection for only one morning that made a difference (laughs) in my heart and life that I tell these 25 years later. And they're probably long gone to be with the Lord unless, like I said, they were 400 years old and are now 425 years old. (laughs) Um, Really, it was marvelous um, how that played out and again speaks to God intimately overseeing the details and the steps of my life in ways that I never could. Did you find that that was the, like a rare experience for you or was that sort of the norm? Do you feel like you were pretty easily embraced and welcomed and transitioned fairly smoothly or was, was it an uphill battle? Was it, you know, a roller coaster to get settled here and feel like you were home? I am a people person, and so I I wouldn't say it was an uphill battle. There's nothing easy about immigrating. There's nothing easy about being an immigrant. The language is, di- is different. The, the way things are said, the way things are pronounced are different. The, the side of the road. I mean, it took me a week to figure out how to cross the road, Jessica. Where you, I don't, I laugh at squirrels now, but that was me back in the day. How they get part, halfway through the across the road and have to back up, <laughs> going, what are we doing? I just need to get across the road, and you can't even do that because everything's backwards and upside down and different, right? And so the the logistics of settling in a different land are very different, very different, very difficult. Your brain is experiencing this explosion after explosion of new novel experiences that are so challenging and what's familiar is so remote and things that you've never even conceived are everyday um, experiences. And so everyday life is very difficult. That said, here's something else that was beautiful that the Lord did just for me. And I call myself a spiritual brat because of the things the Lord does for me, right? Yeah, just for you, Hannah. Um, The year I came, a new fellowship was born on campus called Pacific Christian Fellowship. And so here were these kids who just loved the Lord and wanted to start a, a ministry and um, have an impact on campus. And they too just sucked me right in, called me a sister in the Lord, and off we went doing ministry. And so there, again, I found my people right on campus. And then I had my church body that I'd go to. After a short while of being here, I started to run out of fans, of funds. Pacific's an expensive school and we were paying out of pocket. I wasn't eligible for loans as a, as a foreign student. And so I needed to figure out where to cut corners. The Lord went before me and provided a family that took me in and had me live with them for many months until I could figure myself out at no cost. Right. So here's this gracious family that to this day, I get to call mom and dad and their kids were itty bitties at that time. And they'd come out with their soggy diapers and sit on my lap and we'd have breakfast together in the morning. And now they're grown and married. And so I, I got to belong in that way. Again, the Lord of seeing details of my life in ways that I couldn't and providing for me. That was a huge theme in my life at that time was the gift of provision 
because there were days where I thought, I don't even, when I lived on campus, I don't even know what I'm going to eat tomorrow. I don't even know. Uh, I hate to make, make this phone call home and say, this isn't working out because this is the dream of a lifetime to be able to come to the States. And so, you know, I'd have a counselor, for example, at the campus say, well, if it, you know, if you don't have finances, maybe you could just go home. And I thought, you don't understand. You just don't go home. They gave everything they have back there to make it possible for me to come and be here and give me this opportunity to tell me to just go home. What, what does that even mean? Just go home and, and do what and be what? Right. Uh, so that wasn't even an option. Uh, but I love how the Lord all those years faithfully provided, faithfully and gave me peace and trust and experiences to see him come through for me time after time to build in me the capacity to believe that he is my father and that he will provide for me because he cares. And so I love that witness that these many years later, I can look back and say, I wish I had brought my my bank statements from those days. I'd sit there and look at those bank statements and think, this is just laughable. I don't even know why I have a bank account. <laughs> it's costing me $2 a month. I can't afford that. Right? But our God is so faithful. And he saw me through every last one of those experiences. He is faithful. So we've kind of taken your narrative, your story, into your college years, into the United States, into Oregon. And, and so what? what's the next chapter? I was attending the Christian Fellowship on campus and met this guy and didn't think much of him at the time and went to church the following week. And I was like, oh, it's that guy from uh, PCF. Oh. And so they said hi. And we started hanging out as a group. And he looked like he was 14 years old. And I was a college student. So I didn't have any dealings with 14-year-olds at the time other than to say hello, right? Um, and then presently, we got to hang out in group settings um, with folks from church and from the college ministry, which was all fun. And um, got appointed to helping out in youth ministry and started working a little closer together. And I got to know Justin, who was this kid that was fun and um, grew up in the area. He'd actually grown up in the mountains and, and wanted, to be a, wanted to be a mountain man when he grew up. And <laughs> we could not be more unalike in so many ways, other than having the Lord in common and our faith in common. We started dating about a year into our friendship and were married not long after that. So I, I graduated college and two weeks later we got married. And it was a beautiful, again, guiding from the Lord. Here I was, I was anticipating being in the States for, I had a five year visa. So I was going to work for four, for four years, uh, go to college for four years have a year of work, and then go back to Kenya. And so our conversations with Justin at the time were, well, uh, the Lord's probably going to have me in Kenya, and so I, I hope you'd be open to coming with me to Kenya. And he was, you know, it's not a big deal. We'll just go to Kenya. He doesn't remember that conversation now, but that's okay. <laughs> We've gotten quite comfortable. So Justin and I did not end up moving back to Kenya. The Lord blessed us with with a wonderful, simple life. And we lived out in town. I went back to school and uh, studied occupational therapy and got to practice and do hospice and rehab work for many years. Work that was just really dear to me. But it was hospice and end-of-life care that really stole my heart. Getting to work with particularly the elderly, but also with young people and even children at the end of their lives that changed the trajectory of my life because every day I'd come home and Justin and I would be having dinner and I'd tell him about a gentleman I got to work with and, and the beautiful work that we got to do together because as an occupational therapist, one of my roles was to enhance their quality of life in their last days. A lot of times that meant that you know, Mrs. Brown had a quilt that she was working on, but was too weak to work on that she wanted to have for her daughter before she passed away. 
or Mr. You know, Mr. McDonald had um, loved to tie flies, and he had a set that he was trying to get done before he passed away. So I got to do these amazing things. I got to do end of life legacy videos with them that I then present to their families once they were gone. Just really rich experiences with these people. But every time I came home, I'd tell him, oh, I wish I could bring him home. Oh, I wish I could bring her home with me. And I got to work in a few foster homes out in the area and started to notice a huge difference in clients who were living in loving homes. And a light went off in my head. I want to run a home. I had my first child, took a year off, went back to work for a few weeks, and I thought, nope, I don't know that this is what I want to do. I do not want to come back, leave my baby, and go care for people all day long. I want to be with my baby. I was so in love with him. He was so precious. And so a couple of years later, I had my second son, and I knew I wasn't going back to work. And so I prayed, Lord, um, you've, you've left that desire in my heart to have a home. Would this be a good time for that? And so we went through the process, which was a very protracted process with DHS and licensing and finding a home. And that was another beautiful story, how he provided a home for me in no time that I wasn't even looking for. And it, and, and it just fell in my lap. And, and I had a, a deadline of like 12 hours to get all the paperwork done and submitted. And, and by the time I got that home approved in my name, somebody came back later and said, how did you get that home? We had a waiting list for people waiting on that home. I'm like, spiritual brat, God loves me more. Sorry, um, my home. And so, <laughs> hate to break it to you. Uh, but his provision, again, in circumstances like that. And so that was in 2008. And it's been one of the most amazing and richest experiences of my life to care for people, to care for the elderly, and to get to interact with their families at a time that's really difficult a lot of times with them. It's a rich blessing to get to be the answer to prayer, that a lot of people are in a hospital pulling the hair or in a rehab center knowing they need to place their loved one next Tuesday and having no idea where to start or what to do. And being the answer to that prayer on the receiving end and people coming in and heaving a sigh of relief or crying when they come in and say, yes, this is where I want my parent to be. And so out of that has come incredibly tight relationships as I get to enjoy people's mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers for them, with them. And not only that, but I get to expose my children to multi-generational living, which is so important in my eyes. The elderly have a treasure trove to offer. And my little people have so much to offer to them and so much to learn. Um, I remember my little kids finding a set of dentures and going, holy smokes, what just happened, <laughs> happened here as they're seeing things that little kids normally don't get to see, right? Or I have a fabulous picture of my little guy on a wheelchair, standing on a wheelchair. His big brother is pushing him down the sidewalk outside as he's surfing on this wheelchair. And so just rich experiences like that where they wouldn't have had that. Because we shelter ourselves from each other here, right? We're uncomfortable with people who are different than we are. And so we stay away, not realizing that it's a very thin veneer that separates us. And if we can penetrate that veneer, a world of treasures awaits on the other end. So it's been a rich blessing to own my own business. It's been hard to suck it out um, to do so. It's been hard on my family. It's been a um, sacrifice for my husband and for my boys to have to share their home. And yet the blessings far, far outreach the sacrifices we had to make to have people in our lives and in our hearts and to remain close to family members after the residents pass away from my home. Very rich. Love it. Wow. You're filling a huge need. Just such a 
a testimony to you that you heard that call and were open to it. And it is amazing. I mean, I I love the phrase spiritual brat. I think that's hysterical. And yet there's, you know, when, when it's God's plan, nothing's going to get in its way. Absolutely. And he's like, no, if, if you put that on your heart to do this, then he will part the seas to make it happen. Even when it doesn't make sense to us. Especially when it doesn't make sense. And I, you know, I remember conversations that my husband and I would have. I'm very much a people person and he's very much a private person. Remember, he's my mountain man. (laughs) Um, and here I am thrusting, (laughs) thrusting him and his private life into publicity, right? Because then I have people, I have a very open door policy. People walk in and out of my house. I have family come visit just about any time. They know where the coffee maker is, make your own cup of coffee, but go find mom. And so this was hard for even him to come along thinking this isn't what I want for my life. And so for us to have those difficult conversations and, and for him to at first say, mm, I don't, I don't think so. And me to go back to the drawing board and say, Lord, he's saying no. And I, I really do need to go with his point, with his choice and decision. He is the head of the home. And yet I'm feeling this immense burden. And so I'd give it time and I'd come back and revisit it and I'd come back and revisit it back and revisit it and you know that happens frequently with us because we're so different and our desires are very different and so having to go having to surrender even my calling to the lord repeatedly and say that i'm not seeing how this is going to work lord that it's not making sense that this is going to work i'm going to need you this is your work you make it happen you talk to him you convince him (laughs) <laughs> and make this happen. Um, and that has happened repeatedly in our lives and has helped build us and get us to a place where, oh, for me, I'm needing to trust that it was a matter of timing. Yeah. This calling would come about. Mm-hmm. I normally, like the spiritual brat I am, I normally want it right now. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> uses my husband to slow me down, right? He uses my husband to slow me down because I have about 600 ideas a day. And I want to go with them. And so my mountain man drowns me and slows me down so I can actually think things through and wait on the Lord. Because I am also known for picking fruit before it's ripe. And so the Lord uses that analogy in my life to say, see that fruit? That fruit's there for you. It's not going anywhere. But I need you to wait for it to ripen. Mm-hmm. And realizing that helps me know, okay, it's not ready yet. I can wait. And feeds patience, which is a very difficult virtue in any of us, but so important to the Lord because he needs us to grow in perseverance and character and faith and trust. And so if you have fruit out there, don't pick it before it's right. I think there are a lot of women who need to hear that. We do come across so many obstacles that seem impossible. And oftentimes, just like you said, the answer is timing. And you're going, I, I know that same story exists in so many marriages in particular. Wife feels called by God to do something. Husband does not. Okay. The Bible says to listen to you, Lord, but the Bible says to, you know, have a loving and respectful marriage where the husband's the head of the household. Uh, how is like, it's sort of like, wait a minute, I can't make two plus three equal four. It just doesn't work. How do <laughs> but when you wait on, when you wait on his timing, then suddenly it all fits together. And so I hope, I hope everyone listening can walk away with that line that that fruit is there for you. And you may just need to wait for it to ripen. So I, I was hoping to ask you a little bit about the project you're on right now. And I, I know that we could have not just an entire episode, but probably an entire podcast series on what you're writing and what's going on in your, in your heart and your mind. And it's so rich and it's so deep. But. Could we just maybe give the listeners, you know, that, that preview, that trailer? What are, 
what are you do? What is your passion project right now? And I know there may be some other narrative chapters of your life that sort of led you into your passion project right now, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to explain a little bit about this current chapter that you're in. I love that you call it a passion project because really that's what it is. It's consumed my life for the last two to three years. I'm an avid writer, as I shared before. I have I have journals that date back to the time I was probably 13 years old, and I just love to sit every day and write accounts and descriptions of my life. Like I said, it feels like I'm watching it unfold myself. Um, and so it's really important for me to write things down because I forget details. And also realize that this isn't just about my life. It's about my children and my children's children. And that includes spiritual children that I'll have, that it'll be important for them to read my story as it unfolded. Um, I also dream, I'm going to snip this right in. I also dream of being a little old lady in a fabulous foster home someplace and a sweet caregiver or a daughter-in-law or a grandchild coming in and reading my journals back to me. I just, I, that just blesses me to know him. So I'm going to put that out there and the Lord will make it happen as only he can do. Anyway, I'm currently writing a book and in the process of publishing a book called Napping in Delilah's Lap. Napping in Delilah's Lap is an expose on the pandemic of pornography in the pew and the pulpit. I grew up and was exposed as a child to what are called ACEs. And ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Events or Experiences. And this is becoming a big field in the medical profession in the United States and other parts of the world where the medical community is catching up to realizing the impact of trauma upon a child and how it affects them for the rest of their lives. I grew up exposed to domestic violence and to alcoholism in the home. And that deeply, deeply impacted who I am and who I was as a child, more importantly. I have many memories of experiencing people that I loved so dearly tear each other up night after night after night. And research now shows us the impact of stress hormones that a child is exposed to that just marinades their brain in adrenaline and so many other stress hormones that negatively impact development and growth and their health for the rest of their lives. As a result of that, I made decisions in my life that led me to learn how to nurse the wounds of my soul and my heart. And so I learned at a young age to escape, found myself exposed to adult material at a very young age. I just stumbled upon it. I was sent one day to retrieve something from a relative's home. And while I was looking at the top of the armor for whatever I was supposed to be retrieving, some adult literature fell on the floor. And I leaned over to pick it up to put it back. And my jaw dropped from what I saw that I had never envisioned before. It was hideous and gross and I couldn't put it down. And it sucked me in. By the time I put that away and grabbed whatever item I'd come to retrieve, I walked in a child and walked out having come of age in a most gross way. I couldn't talk to anybody about what I'd seen. The topic was taboo in the culture. I didn't have close enough relationships to even ask what I'd seen. Here was a child. But what I found is that when things got hard at home, that material became a source of some comfort to me. And whether I returned to it physically or mentally, it took the place of a comforter in my life. Because I remember nights when I couldn't go to sleep. But if I replayed what I'd seen and what was now embedded in my mind, I could go to sleep. Mine was a culture where I'd wake up the next morning after 
horrendous fights and everything would be back to normal. People were smiling at each other and everybody was saying good morning and it was very confusing for me. But we, we were just blasting each other last night. Now we're best friends again. What is this? Right. But we didn't talk about things. And so I learned very swiftly to speak things under the carpet. And I learned that we don't confront issues. And I learned that we don't talk about them. And I became a master at facade management. And even when I was hurting, I learned to say I wasn't because it was too painful to express pain or to say there was pain or acknowledge that or it would be poo-pooed. And I'd be told, don't worry about that. Or you, you're just a child. You don't need to think about that. And yet these were things that were eating me up. Okay. So I learned at a young age to categorize my feelings, to categorize my thoughts. I learned very quickly what was acceptable, what was not acceptable, what were go-to topics, what were topics that were absolutely no-nos. It was somehow in my mind justified and justifiable. In my mind, I thought, oh, it doesn't affect anybody but me, right? But I realized this is unacceptable before the Lord for a woman of God. And so he has used that to inspire the utmost importance and the writing of the utmost importance to him of sexual purity in the lives of Christians and to pinpoint the damage that is done. Because I talked about a divine romance at the beginning. And it is so important to him that he alone be the lover of our souls and that nothing else in our lives be in the way of intimacy between us and him. So many times in our lives, we adopt habits, people, things, behaviors that we go to for what the doctors that study ACEs call ritualized, compulsive, comfort-seeking behaviors, which really are addictions. The Bible calls idolatry. There are things that we go to for comfort, to find relief from pain, and to escape difficult circumstances. And the sad part is that God has ordained and orchestrated that the gift of sex be symbolic of our relationship with him. As such, it is imperative for the enemy to come in and pervert that gift because it's the most potent and clearest picture of what God does and how he desires to relate to us. And so it's interesting that in the Hebrew language and culture, the words for sexual immorality and idolatry is porneia, and they are two wings on the same bird. So it doesn't matter what your idol is. It can even be a good thing. It can even be a blessing of God. It could be your children. It could be your husband. It could be a, it, it could be a job. It could be anything. But if it comes between you and the lover of your soul, it becomes an idol. And so as I write uh, Napping in Delilah's Lap, I paint a picture of Samson, who is this larger-than-life Old Testament character who was foretold by God to his parents, Manoah and his wife, who could not bear children forever. And uh, an angel of the Lord visited her in the field one day and told her that he was going to give her a child. And so Samson was foretold and he was chosen to be a leader to free the Israelites from their current oppressors, the Philistines. Delilah was a Philistine woman. So here's Samson, an Israelite leader, who's supposed to be freeing the Israelites from, from the Philistines. And he is napping in Delilah's lap. He is literally sleeping with the enemy. And the Lord laid on my heart that when we engage in any form of idolatry, we are napping on Delilah's lap. And like Delilah, our idols, our temptress, 
does not have plans for our good. And so my book is a wake-up call for us to arise from this stupor and the choices that we're making that seem rather innocuous and not a big deal at all, but really are feeding into the plan of the enemy to kill and steal and destroy us. And so that ties in also with the Lord bringing me to a point where I recently earned my doctorate in Christian counseling. And he has shown me clearly that he desires freedom for his children. And so napping in Delilah's lap is a wake-up call to the body of Christ to get the heck off Delilah's lap. We have no business there. She is the enemy, no matter what that looks like. And so I'm privileged to sit with people and hear the stories of their lives and realize that we are going to substitute for comfort when God himself is offering himself as the comforter. It's interesting to me that the three persons of the Trinity all have the attribute of comforter. Which tells us that life is hard, like Jesus, it's like Jesus said up front, right? In this world, you will have trouble. But I have overcome the world. And so we need to learn to go to Him for our comfort. The Father promises to wipe the tears from our eyes and to be our comforter. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and He will send you another comforter. And Jesus Himself is going to be the Lamb on the throne who will wipe away the tears from our eyes. And in Second Corinthians, Paul is talking about the Father, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. But we don't want that comfort. We want our easy comfort that we have on hand and that we can manipulate, right? And in essence, we end up cheating on the level of our souls when we run here to these cheap substitutes, when real comfort can be found only in the Father. And so I... I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled beyond belief that uh, he's given me the opportunity to to write this work and to share it in a way that is tangible, that is practical, um, that offers steps out of situations we may have painted ourselves into, and to fling ourselves back into his arms as we get to engage and relish that divine romance. It's just so amazing the the depth of the topics that you're writing about. And I'll remember most the visual you painted of the two wings of the same bird and how often we separate those wings. We put them in two completely different categories and don't see or don't want to see that they're connected and, and that they're deeply connected, not just like a little connection. <laughs> so it's and what's been beautiful has been learning the power of obeying scripture when God says expose it mm. and being vulnerable. I wrote the book with much dread and trepidation. Who would want to expose a thing like that about themselves, right? Especially after being involved in ministry for years. Um, and one of the richest blessings has been sharing or sharing about my book. And then either immediately or a little while later, somebody contacting me and saying, I need to talk to you. Mm. I too have been struggling with this for years. Yeah. Because in our culture, it's a, it's an issue that we don't think of as women struggling in. Right. It, it's a man's problem. Right. Um, and nothing could be further than the truth right. because increasingly women and heartbreakingly now children are deeply ensnared in the trap of pornography, sexual immorality, idolatry, because we put gadgets in their hands where they are actively being solicited by the world to the moon they're not looking. And the snare is just so pernicious and so buried by layers of muck and layers of taboo and layers of secrecy. But we see the results all around us. We hear of scandals constantly, 
so many children around us have been abused. So many of us as adults have been abused. And that's why it was really important for me to make the connection between those adverse childhood events or experiences and the comfort seeking. Because so frequently, if we don't take care of the trauma that we've experienced as children, it will almost automatically lead to an addiction or another. And so if we're not talking about what happened back in the day, we're not even acknowledging that there's a problem. And um, the Lord desires us to expose it because it's one of the ways that there's no other way around it. That, that's his way. And things need to be done his way, right? Um, there's no other way out to freedom. And what has been amazing is the immense sense of freedom that I have experienced, but also the grace and love from the body of Christ as I've come up with this. Because you can imagine the enemy would taunt me and say, whoa, whoa, time out. Why? No, no, you don't go there, right? Um, what will they think was such a big one, this gremlin inside of me talking about. But I have found nothing but grace in the body of Christ as we realize that really we all struggle with something or other. And if we can't be real enough with what we're struggling with, then we can't relate. We can't belong to one body. But if we can be honest and vulnerable and come out with the things that we're struggling with, we find healing, abundant healing. I, I call it akin to going to the wound clinic. That we need to go to the wound clinic with, with each other regularly and open up those nasty rags and look at those wounds. And the only way to get them healed is to unwrap them and clean them and put fresh salve on them and rewrap them. But as a culture, we, a Christian culture worldwide, we've gotten into the habit of saying, nope, there's, there's no problem here. Nope, no struggles here. I'm good. Right. And nothing could be further from the truth because it seriously hampers our spiritual development. It hampers our relationships with each other. And most importantly, our relationship with Jesus. Absolutely. And, and there are so many wounds we're willing to unwrap and talk about. And then there are the wounds that fall into this other category where we pretend they don't exist. And no, we don't talk about that one. And I mean, sort of the tagline to story night is real women, real stories, real hope. And so that whole, that point of real, (laughs) this is real life. We're not sugarcoating things or sweeping things under the rug. This is, this is real. And we, yeah, that being that vulnerable with each other is so important. So Hannah, I know there's so much more to what you're doing and what you have available. So for the listeners who are thinking, gosh, I want to read more or I want to hear more or I want to connect with with Hannah, can you point the listeners maybe in some directions? Like I know I've seen some of your things on YouTube and I'll put all of this in the episode notes. So listeners, you don't feel like you have to grab a pen and paper and write this all down. I'll I'll copy it in. But just Hannah, would you share a little bit of how they can find more of you? <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Jessica. Um, he's led me more and more lately to to share my story and to share lessons that he teaches me. One of the forums I use is YouTube, like Jessica shared. And my channel on there is Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H. It's a palindrome. It's my favorite palindrome. Hannah T-K. So H-A-N-N-A-H and then the letters T and K. Um, so that's my YouTube. And then I have a blog that's tribalminded.com. Tribalminded.com. Um, and I do a lot of writing on there and part of my, uh, I have a section on there for my book and I'll give you updates as they come up. I'm hoping for a release of the book this fall and I'll have updates on there for that. Thank you so much. And and we'll include the links in the episode notes. So if you've been listening at the end of this episode, you can go back and and click on any of those if you'd like to get further connected. Hannah, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your story. And I, as always, ask our speakers if they are willing to close us in prayer for the listeners. And so I'd love to ask you to do that if you don't mind. Absolutely. My pleasure. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for sitting here with us during this podcast. 
and engaging with us in it. Uh, more importantly, I thank you for our listener. A special lady sitting out there hearing these words whose heart is being deeply stirred and moved. And that that is a wooing of your amazing Holy Spirit saying, you, beautiful woman, are mine. And I long to rescue you. I long to redeem you. I long to clean you, to use you, to turn you into a work of art and to prepare you for eternity. And so, Father, I pray that hearts would be open and responsive to that calling of the Holy Spirit upon them, that women would reach out to each other, to me, but more importantly, to you, and call upon you to free them from the snare of death and from the cords of the grave that might entangle them and confront them, Lord. You are a mighty conqueror. You will free us and deliver us, and you will exalt yourself greatly in every single aspect of our lives as we surrender them to you. Thank you for knowing us. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for walking us through fire. Thank you for delivering us from the hands of the enemy and the plans of the enemy which were to destroy us. Thank you for delivering us from all that. Father, we love you so much. And we long for eternity when we will see you face to face. And we pray that we will please you every day of our lives between now and then. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen. Amen. Thank you again, Hannah. So good to see your face on the screen. <laughs> and I look forward to the day when we actually get to meet in person for the first time. I can't wait. I can't yeah. wait. Thank you for your kind invitation to me and and the time. And um, I I can't wait to see what the Lord does and continues yeah. to do in your life and um, through your life. Thank you. And thank you, Angeline, for connecting us. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to this episode of Story Night. And we hope that you will be joining us next week for the next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast. A ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women. Women.